Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. And what a truth that, that Christ is our solid rock and that he is our firm foundation, that he is our sure and steady anchor. In the fury of the storm, I don't know what storm you brought in this morning, but I trust that all of us has at least one and sometimes, you know, you got like a five alarm fire going on. Every, everything is, is under assault and under attack. And I'm so thankful that we have the word of God. Uh, that guides us every day. It guides us as believers and as a church. And so we're going to dive in. Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13. But first, uh, I want to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in together. God in heaven, we thank you that you sent your son in fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, and we can stake our lives on Jesus. We thank you that you are working that you are convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment, that you are bringing encouragement to those who need to be encouraged. And God, we pray uh, that you would allow our hearts and our minds to be uh, just totally and singularly focused on what you have to say to us this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians 2, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 Paul is writing a letter to the church at Philippi, thanking them for the gift that they have given to them as a representation of their partnership in the gospel. And he's thankful for that, but he's also concerned that there's some opposition in Philippi that's eroding their resolve to stand firm in the spirit and strive together for the faith of the gospel. So gospel tenacity and church unity are at stake in Philippi. And I submit to you that gospel tenacity and church unity are at stake in every church uh, around the globe that wants to keep caring about Jesus and keep the main thing the main thing because we've got an enemy who doesn't want us to keep the main thing the main thing. So we can learn from Philippians right here in 2023 at North Roanoke Baptist Church. So going all the way back to chapter 1 verse 27, Paul commands the church to continually conduct themselves as citizens. What kind of citizens? Citizens of God's kingdom, living worthy of the gospel in their shared lives together. Not just as individual islands, but in community with one another. And it's not going to be easy, right? Paul knows something about not being easy. He's writing from prison, so he knows adversity. He's dealt with preachers preaching out of rivalry to try and undercut him. And oh yeah, He's waiting on a verdict on his life. And he expects the verdict to go well, but he is nevertheless waiting in prison for a trial in which his life hangs in the balance. So Paul tells us at the end of chapter 1 that God's grace includes not just the grace to believe in Jesus, but the grace to suffer for the sake of Jesus. And that means we've got to find our consolation, our, our comfort, not in turning the church into a club that caters to our every interest, that devolves the church into some sort of buffet where we just grab what we want. But we find our comfort where? We find it in Christ Jesus. 
That means we're a family united in the mind and the love of God as we strive to glorify Jesus by living like Him in our relationships with one another. To stand firm and strive for the gospel, we've got to be united, Paul establishes at the end of chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he begins to turn the corner and show us that to be united, we've got to be in Christ. We've got to have the sort of mind of Christ that's described in, cha- in verses 6 through 11. It's not a mind that grasps at our advantages and our privileges, but instead it's a mind that empties itself for the glory of God and His saving purposes. It's a mind that looks to the end, the day when all will confess that Christ is Lord as the day of vindication. So we've been commanded by Paul to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. We've seen that this requires standing and striving together for the faith of the gospel. We've seen that Jesus is the source and the example of the sort of humble-mindedness that is required for us to live together as kingdom citizens. And now, in verses 12 and 13, Paul writes this. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In 1988, the advertising agency Whedon and Kennedy coined the now iconic tagline, just do it. And the Nike shoe company would never be the same. Over the next decade, Nike's share of the sports shoe business in North America went from 83% of all sports shoes sold to 43% in just one decade. Just do it. There's something captivating and convicting about those words, right? Just do it. So many of us think about starting that exercise plan that we really need to start, just do it. Oops. Right? But then once you just do it, it's like, yes, I, I just did it. But until you just do it, it's like, oh, I just need to do it. Maybe that's just me. You know, uh, many marriages could be strengthened by those three little words. Just do it. And what we see in this passage is Paul saying, essentially, I've told you what to do and the motivation for doing it, so just do it. So this morning's message is titled, Just Do It. He's he's told us everything we need to do, and in verses 12 and 13, he's saying, just do it. In verse 12, he shows us that we've got to keep on working out our salvation with a serious dependency upon God the Lord. In verse 12, he begins with a therefore, or in the Greek, literally a so then. What what has Paul just said in verse 11? That that every personal being in the universe is one day going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in a world that is set against Jesus, in a world where there are thousands of distractions and reasons to get our knickers in a knot and to pick up our ball and quit and go home, and quit on Christ in the church. What does Paul say? So then, don't forget how history ends and how eternity continues. It ends and continues with this confession. 
Jesus Christ is Lord. Nothing else is Lord. No other thing that is on your mind this morning that's distracting you from being able to lock in on Jesus is Lord. I didn't like that song. It's 69 degrees in here and I prefer 72. I didn't get my grocery shopping done yesterday and I got to get it done later today. None of that is God. None of that is Lord. And we spend so much of our life living distracted rather than focused on the culmination of history and the beginning of eternity. So then, because Christ is Lord, just do it. Because Christ is Lord, whatever it is you heard in that sermon that the Spirit impressed upon your heart, go do it. That's what Paul is saying. So then what is needed? What is needed is obedience. Work it out. Just as you've always obeyed, keep obeying. Philippians, he, Paul calls the church at Philippi his beloved. Why does he do that? Is it not because our flesh so often hears hard things as unloving? You, you don't love me because you told me something hard. You don't love me because you told me something to adjust or course correct. We don't want to hear that, right? And that's why the whole world's gone soft and hands out participation trophies all the time. We don't want winners and losers. We don't want A, B, C, D, and F. You know, well, he got a he passed. He did okay. But the Bible says sometimes we've got to say and do hard things. And doing so is not unloving. He's speaking the truth in love. So he says, my beloved, I, I love you. And he loves them deeply. He loves them enough to tell them the hard thing. It would be unloving of him to ignore their need for endurance in obeying Jesus. Genuine faith in Jesus leads to obedience to Jesus. Not in the sense of getting out a rule check sheet to justify ourselves, which is where so many people who grew up in the church got it wrong. And in a sense, it's not their fault. Because it's the way we did youth ministry for so long. Well, I didn't have sex before I got married. I read my Bible. I did the things I was supposed to do, and I didn't do the things that I was supposed to do. And we, we created a bunch of little good Pharisees who look fine on the outside, but they're broken on the inside because they never learned to love Jesus. And the obedience that Paul is commending here is not Phariseeism, it's not checklistism. it is an obedience from the heart, out of love for Christ, out of a delight in coming under His authority because He is our God and He is our justification before a perfect and holy God. What does Jesus say? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you have the right checklist, you'll go to heaven. He says, if you love me, if you genuinely love me, you're going to obey me. So Paul says, look, I've, I've always known you to give evidence of your faith in Jesus by way of your obedience to Jesus. So whether I'm with you or not, Paul says, keep on obeying. Indeed, he urges them to obey when he's absent. Do you see this in verse 12? Much more or all the more. So when I'm away, Paul says, keep on obeying. Here's, here's Paul's point. If we could sort of read between the lines. He's saying this, don't let this be said of you. 
God forbid that you're all gung-ho for Jesus and united when I'm there and you, then you, when I'm away, you fall into factions and pettiness and selfishness. Your obedience is not obedience if it's driven by Paul's presence and then it goes away when Paul disappears. Obedience should not be, demon- it should not be uh, contingent upon the presence of the pastor or your spiritual hero or your mom showing up. Oh, I better get things together. But I need to, need to make all the hard liquor disappear because mom and dad are coming over. And then as soon as they're gone, well, I'm just going to bring it all back out. I'm going to live the way I want to live. No, our obedience is predicated not on the presence of a human person. It's predicated on the glory of Christ. It should be driven by joy for new life in Jesus, even when it's challenging. It should be driven by a vision of our Savior's greatness. Jesus is Lord. So, as they've always obeyed, meaning from the time they trusted Jesus forward, they must keep on obeying. Through Paul, the Spirit commands them, and he commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To, to obey Jesus is to work out the salvation given by Jesus in our shared lives together. He says, y'all work out your salvation. Not just individually, but together as a church as well. And he tells them to do so with fear and trembling. We can't separate sanctification in our lives from our shared lives with the saints. If we've been saved by Jesus, we've been called to work out the implication of his salvation. This requires both individual and community effort. To, for us to be saved together, every single individual needs to care about the church, and the church needs to care about the individual's salvation. We've got to be consciously committed to standing firm in the one Holy Spirit, chapter 1, verse 27. We must be consciously committed to striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We must pursue unity through a conscious commitment to selflessness in the body for the good of the body and the glory of Christ. We've got to have the mind of Jesus reflected in the actions of Jesus, who though he was God, came to die for the good of his church. And if Jesus died to make us his bride for our good, ought we be willing to die for the good of one another? And just don't, and we don't just think about these things, right? This is, you say, well, you've already preached that the last four weeks. Yes, I have. And why am I saying it again? Because in verse 12, what does Paul say? Don't just think about it. Don't just memorize the scripture and have it in your brain to do no good in actually being executed. He says, go do these things. Work it out. The word work out means to bring about or to accomplish or to fashion or if you will, just do it. And for some, the phrase... Or the command, work out your salvation, is a little bit of a head-scratcher, right, in the back of your mind? Because here's, here's what you're saying. If you're, if you're one of these theological types, you're like, hold on a second. Did Paul just tell me to work out my salvation and for us to work out our salvation? I thought God saved me. I thought it was totally a work of God. I mean, Jonah 2.9 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
In Romans 4, 5, Paul is clear. Salvation is not earned by our works, but received by faith in Jesus. He writes, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Well, which is it, Paul? Am I to work out my own salvation, or am I saved entirely by God? Yes. It's all true. Salvation is entirely God's work. We get zero credit for our right standing before God because of what we do. And yet, here it is, in the local church, we must continually, it's the present tense, keep on working out our salvation. Jesus has saved you, if he saved you, into a family to work hard and consistently at pursuing the implications of his salvation in your local church. Silva puts it this way, it's impossible to tone down the force with which Paul points to our conscious activity in our sanctification. Though this should give us pause, the thought should give us pause rather, our salvation, which we confess to be God's from beginning to end, is here described as something that we have to bring about. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? We're not saved by our works but we are saved for good works, Ephesians 2.9. James 2.17 says, The faith that is without works is dead. It actually wasn't a real authentic faith. Our right standing before God is totally from Jesus, and if we have saving faith in Jesus, we will work. We will work at working out our salvation in our church. Silva continues, Because, sanct- sa- because salvation is, in its entire scope, necessarily includes the manifestation of the righteousness of God in our lives, it follows that our activity, our work, just doing it, is integral to the process of salvation. It seems there's a tendency among some believers to be so concerned to say, rightly, salvation is entirely from God, that they never get around to the responsibilities that God's salvation produces. There's some so busy guarding against the belief that we can work for our righteousness, which we can't, something Paul is very concerned about, but they're so concerned about defending the reality that we can't work for our righteousness that they seldom work. But save people work. Save people work out their salvation, a salvation given by God that produces in us a Christ-like concern for others that results in action. Well, God's going to have everybody here that he wants to be here on Sunday morning. Yeah, he is. That's true. But if somebody uses that line of thinking as a reason to not make a text or pick up the phone and make a call when you notice somebody's not been here for weeks on end? Don't blame God when they conclude nobody at North Roanoke cared or thought about them. Does this make sense? Are you tracking? We have a responsibility that's been built into us by God. Christians don't just post memes and read books and hang out in libraries and coffee shops to talk about God's sovereign grace. 
They get enmeshed in the life of a local church and they do hard work, physical work, mental work, emotional and spiritual work of becoming selfless for the glory of Christ and the good of the church. Just do it. To work out our salvation is not opposed to thinking about other believers. Some of you are like, well, if I'm thinking about my salvation, then I'm not thinking about others. Of course you're thinking about others because God has saved you into a church to be thinking about others. So part of working out your own salvation is cultivating this others-focused thinking in your life. Working out our salvation requires thinking about other believers. And acting accordingly. Those who have genuine faith in Jesus have God as their Father and His people as brothers and sisters. So we work out our salvation and we do it with fear and trembling. What does it mean that we do it with fear and trembling? It means we don't do it begrudgingly, we do it seriously. We take it serious, we take church seriously. We take our relationships seriously. We take our standing before God seriously. We take the opportunity to serve and to work and to pray for one another seriously. We work by realizing, excuse me, we work realizing the immense privilege of being brought into the family of God. We work with a sense of being overwhelmed by the opportunity to stand by the one and the one for whom we work. We work with a sense of the importance of working well for our king in a world that desperately needs a living witness to him. So real Christians really work. And they really work out their salvation in their church. Those who've been made righteous by Jesus will work in selfless humility in the church for the progress of the gospel deep into their own lives and out into the world. So if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear real Christians really work for their own growth in Christ and the growth of their entire church in Christ-likeness. means we confess, we repent, we heal, we pray, we serve, we make meals. We do this as we work out the salvation God has built into us. And yet... If we hear verse 12 and we think, see there, a little less talk and a lot more action. Thank you. If we think that we can unhitch our work from sound theology, that if we could just set the Bible aside and who God is aside and we'll just get to work, then we've we've committed the opposite error of those who think they're just going to stick their nose in the Bible all day and never do anything. They're both errors. Verse 13, we see that working out our salvation is possible because of the ongoing work of God. So in verse 12, in verse 12 it kind of smacks around those who are prone to laziness in the face. Just sort of... Don't be lazy. You actually need to apply what you're reading. Verse 13 kind of claps back against anyone who says, we can work out our salvation without God. We don't need God for this. Of course you need God for this. None of this would happen without God. So the second point and the final point this morning is this. We can work out our salvation only because God is working in us. If you read verse 12 and you're like, that's it, all I have to do is just do it, 
Don't need to think about God. Don't need to meditate on who God is. Don't need to know who God is. Don't need to pursue the heart of God in word and in community with other people and in prayer. I'm just going to do it, do it, do it. No, it's, you've missed it. So verse 13, Paul says literally, the one who works, the working is God. <laughs> you got to work out your salvation. And then in 13, but the one who works, the working is God. Why can we work out our salvation with fear and trembling and yet with confidence? Because, for, do you see that in verse 13? This is the reason. The reason we can work is because God is working. It's not because God comes along and gives us a little boost after we start to work in our own strength. It's because God is the one who works the working. Must we work? Absolutely. But we can only work out our salvation because God is working his salvation in us. God supplies what is needed for the work. He empowers the work and that is our confidence. He has to empower the work because the work is not just taking trips and planning a lesson and raking leaves and changing a diaper and digging wells and knocking on doors or handing out candy. It's also the relational stuff of life where God is at work among us and we've got to keep on working to have this christ-like humility as he keeps breaking our pride and leads us to be more like jesus as we pursue unity in his mission silva says this the outworkings of the believer's personal salvation take the form of obligations within the local church every believer has a duty to seek the good of other believers God is at work in the meeting, the business meeting, where the one who always has to have a say chooses to keep their mouth shut. He's at work when the lady who never dares ask a question ends up opening her mouth to ask the question that everybody else had. And she was too embarrassed, but God empowered her to ask the question. He's at work when the generations in the church stop talking about each other and start talking to one another about Jesus and the gospel. He's at work when someone shuts down gossip and directs a complaint or a comment to the one being talked about. He's at work when someone shares a prayer request in your 3D group about somebody they're burdened for and they're nervous about sharing the gospel. And rather than just saying, I'm going to pray for that person, God emboldens you to say, do you think that we could go to lunch with them together? I'll walk with you side by side as we share the gospel with them together. God is at work in his church when we cultivate the mind of Christ to do the hard things, to become less like our fleshly selves and more like our glorious Savior. And when we do that, God is working the work. We work in these ways, in these self-emptying ways, because God is the one who works the work in and among us. Specifically, how does he work? Verse 13, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He doesn't just motivate us to do something that we wouldn't otherwise do. He gives us the desire to do it. He works on our will and our action. This is a description of the transformation that God makes in the heart of the believer. He operates on the will and on the working. 
When the Spirit unites us with faith, with Jesus by faith, God works on both our will and our actions. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be genuinely converted? It is not maintaining a checklist. It is to be transformed at the root of your life by a holy God. It is to be supernaturally united with the king of the universe, to be placed in Jesus by the Spirit. It, mean, it means that God then begins to work the sort of humble-minded yet joy-filled obedience that Jesus had and offered to the Father for us. It means to begin to have that in our own lives. It means that our desires and our ambitions are becoming less and less about us and more and more about Jesus and his church and the advance of his gospel to the nations. That is a sure sign that God is at work. And I love what Gordon Fee says here. Being Christ means to be converted in the true sense of the word. Being Christ means to have your life invaded by God's Holy Spirit so that not simply the new behavior is now affected, but the new desire toward God that prompts the behavior in the first place. And notice what God does in us together and individually. He is working in us both to will and to work for the sake of His, of his good pleasure. Apart from God's working, we won't have the desire for salvation and we won't have the ability to work out our salvation. We won't want to pummel our pride or tame our tongues or confess our sins or be quick to forgive. When God saves us, he begins this lifelong process of him working on our wanter, our desires, and our actions. He changes our desires and our follow-through. The reason that you can do what you sense or you feel or you know is right to do is because God is already at work in you such that you are desiring to do the work he's given you to do. And when you do the work, guess what you're going to find out? He's working. Just put it to the test. Just do it. Man, I, I really want to start to read the Word more faithfully. I really want to get plugged into a 3D group. I really want to restore that relationship. And I feel like that's what I should do. Well, who's that coming from? That's not coming from your flesh. That's coming from the Spirit of God. And what Paul is saying is if you'll step out and you'll work what he's working into your wanter, you're going to find out that God's already ahead of you doing the work that you're so afraid to do because of what might happen when I acknowledge my sin or when I forgive my brother or when I work on this relationship. God's already ahead of you. The re this reality is what, Paul, is, is what leads Paul to write in Ephesians chapter 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. And what did Paul say back in chapter 1, verse 6? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will do what? Do you remember? Will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The God who started a saving work in you continues a saving work in you. And with that knowledge, you can just do it. 
You can go ahead and pursue the hard work of selflessness because you know that God is at work. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, he's especially working in our areas of greatest weakness. Isn't that good news? So the thing that you feel most inadequate in, the most deficient in, the most vulnerable in, God is surely going to work right there. So here's what happens in our lives. We, we feel on the basis and the authority of God's word as God is shaping us according to his word that there's a step that we should take and we're like a million excuses flood our mind about why we can't do it about why God has someone else to serve on the parking team, or God has someone else uh, who's going to take care of that need or that issue. I could never, I could never, I could never. And what does Paul say? That's exactly why God wants to use you. Because God is working the work. I love what John Murray says about what's going on in the totality of verses 12 and 13. God's working in us is not suspended because we work nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did His part and we did ours, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produced the required result. No, God works and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and working. I want you to get this last sentence. Lock in for just a second. We're almost there. The more persistently active we are in working, You follow that? The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we become that all the energizing grace and power is from God. The more you get to work, the more you realize God is at work. Don't miss the final words of verse 13. For the sake of his good pleasure... God did not save you to stall out. God did not save you to not make it to the finish line. He delights in working to lead us to be and become individually and together everything that he saved us to be. As Fee writes, God does this for his people precisely because it pleases him to do so. Why does God do this? He loves it. He loves to see us working out the work that he's working into us for the glory of his son. And he delights in it, and he delights in it to give us delight in it as well. He delights to delight his people, and that gives God delight. He delights in working to make us like Jesus, and in working to bring his saving work to completion in us individually and together. And when we delight in God. And when we delight in working out our salvation, we find that as a salvation, He will not fail to work into us. So what do we do? What do we do with verses 12 and 13? Just do it. And watch God work. 
Stop thinking about what you'd like to do. Stop thinking about what you'd like to improve or to grow or to begin, what relationship you'd like to begin to deepen and just do it. But pastor, you don't understand. I'm an introvert. I, I don't understand. But there's not an exception clause. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, but I don't really naturally enjoy getting to know people, so I'm just going to check out of that, and I'm going to fly in and sit as far away from everybody as I can, and I'm going to get out as soon as I can, and that's going to be my Christianity. Where's that in the Bible? Does that mean that it might be harder for you? 100%. But guess who's working the work? God. Step out. But, but pastor, that person didn't even acknowledge me last week. Or for the last month. Well, why don't you stop focusing on what they didn't do and you be the first to just do it because God's working in the work. You're still both showing up. Maybe God wants to do something in your lives. But, but, but pastor, let, let's, let's apply this in our marriages, right? Because marriage is kind of a microcosm of the church. God is, we've been married to Christ and we're here in covenant community together. But, but many of you are, are married and I, and I know your marriages are always perfect and friction free. Um, but pastor... He still isn't taking out the trash. Like, we've had this conversation, and he's still dropping the ball. So I'm going to withhold love and affection and respect and encouragement because of this thing. No mercy, no grace. I'm going to go to quid pro quo box-checking relationship. When he checks all his boxes, then I'll check mine. Not a day sooner. Where is that in the Gospels? Where is that? What does God say? He didn't even remember to take out the trash. You know what God says? Just do it. Just keep loving. Keep serving. Keep blessing. Rest in Christ and watch God work in your marriage. But you don't know what she... I don't... Just do it. Just do it. And not because I say so, but because God's word says so. When you endeavor to do it, you will discover in that moment that God is always working. And he is there to do it with you. Beloved, we have something far more significant than a pair of Nikes to put on. Athletes put on their Nikes and they think they're going to be the best athlete in the world. And I don't know about you, but Nikes didn't make me a better runner. I didn't get any faster because I put Nikes on. But if you'll put to death the flesh and put on Christ by the power of Spirit and just do it, I say to you with 100% confidence on the authority of God's Word that Jesus is already working so you can do it. So this morning, as our worship team comes, why don't we look to Jesus and just do it?
Whatever that is, whatever the it is, whatever God is convicting you to do. Somebody in this room, something in your marriage, something in your workplace, that God is leading you to work out your salvation. Why not let today be the day that you resolve to not just feel and know inwardly what you ought to do, but you resolve you're going to leave this place and you're just going to do it for the glory of Christ. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, have your will and your way in this place. We want to be a church that is living for and modeling and reflecting the glory of our God. And we want to be a church that is united and making an impact for the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, have your will and your way and make us a people who are able, because you are always working, to just do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.